Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ, our Savior. And truly, Lord, before you, we have no other plea. There's nothing that we could claim in and of our own lives that would make us worthy uh, to stand uh, before you as righteous and holy and, and deserving of entering into your kingdom. But Lord, we stand all uh, before you, uh, guilty, but through faith in your Son, we stand forgiven, cleansed. In fact, we stand before, before you with the perfect righteousness that Christ has, possesses and has imputed to us. Lord, we thank you so much for this uh, amazing salvation, this, this, uh, this, this transaction, spiritual transaction that, Lord, no, none of us would have ever earned or deserved or could have dreamed of. Lord, it is, was your plan from eternity past, uh, before there was time even. And God, we praise you and thank you for your wisdom, <clears throat> your mercy, your grace, your love for sinners like ourselves. We worship you and thank you. We want uh, to respond in love for you, to you, and ask that as we hear your word, give us ears to hear, help us to listen uh, to what you have to say, and that you would help us to obey and follow your ways. Lord, we entrust you this time and be glorified in the proclamation of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, be seated, brothers and sisters. And as you're seated, if you have your Bibles, please take them and turn with me once again to the book of Hebrews. Uh, we're back in Hebrews this week. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 through 29. Hebrews 12, 18 to 29. Uh, and uh, we are coming near to the end of Hebrews. I'm getting really excited. Our staff just this week discussed, and we're, we're pretty much almost finalized. We are strongly leaning towards the book of Daniel for our next book. So uh, we are looking forward to that, and hopefully you pray for us and that we would, as a church, uh, see God's plan as for, uh, for the world as reflected in Daniel. I think Daniel will just be a great book. We'll look forward to hitting that sometime in April, I believe. But now we have a few, really this chapter, the end of this chapter, and then one more chapter after this in Hebrews, and we are, we're done. But Hebrews chapter 12, 18, 29, hopefully you are there now with me. And if you remember way back when, when we started our series, I think it was about a year and a half ago, uh, it was around Christmas time when we started examining the book of Hebrews. And we observed that the book of Hebrews, though we often call it a letter, it's not quite a letter. It's really a sermon in written form. It exhorts and warns the readers to not fall away from Christ, and it explains it from the Old Testament scriptures. It does so by arguing that Jesus Christ is a superior or better high priest than any high priest that has ever lived in Israel. And just as the author of Hebrews is coming near the end of his exhortation, like all good sermons, well, actually, I by that, like some good sermons, because I might not do that at times, uh, the conclusion will bring the reader back to the introduction of the sermon. And do you remember the introduction of the sermon? Do you remember how the author of Hebrews began Hebrews? And that's what we find today. And we're going to take a look at that and we're going to contrast that. Hebrews, if you remember, begins in this way. God, after he spoke 
long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways. In these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he has made the world. God had spoken in the past through prophets, through in various different ways, different manifestations of himself in, in the world. And though he spoke that way in many different ways in the Old Testament, in in the New Testament, we come that God has spoken finally in his Son. God could not make himself more clear to mankind than by sending his own Son in human flesh to live and walk among us so that we might see and talk and touch and be with him. And in his short life on earth, he spoke to us the truths of God, and he manifests God to man. And so, in Jesus, God's Son, God the Father, has spoken his final word. And we learn today that if we refuse God's Son, we are refusing God's word. And that is a terrible thing that results in a consequence of severe judgment. The main instruction or the main command we're going to see today is in verse 25, where the author encourages us to see to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking, believers of Jesus Christ, followers of Christ, this, uh, particularly this Jewish background audience that is the recipients of Hebrews, are warned to not refuse God who is speaking. Don't, don't reject God's word. Don't turn a deaf ear to what God is saying. You can do that intentionally by your disobedience, and you can do it in, uh, by unintentionally even, or lazily by your neglect even. But nevertheless, if you neglect If you don't listen to God's word, if you don't hear God's word, you don't hear and obey God's word, it puts us in that place where we are in danger of falling away, of turning away from Christ. So we come to now this section, this uh, latter part of chapter 12, and it is what's known as the final warning of Hebrews. There are five warning passages. This is the last and final of them, the fifth and final one. And so <clears throat> the author wants to bring, uh, almost he, he alludes to various things that he's talked throughout the book, but he brings a, uh, a final exhortation to the, his readers. As we examine our text today then, Falls of Christ, we're all spurred on to faithfulness to God, to endure, to run with the race with endurance. And we're encouraged to endure by re- being reminded that God is holy, that we have a holy God. Not only is a holy God, but he's a, because he's holy, in a sense, because we are sinners, it is a terrifying thing to stand, to draw near to a holy God. And a God who is holy is a God who is also a judge and must punish sin, and therefore there is a, there's a wrath of God that we're going to be revealed, exposed to in this text. And in a sense, we there's a, there's a healthy fear. Just as we're taught to fear fire, well, we, are, we, ought to, we should have a healthy fear 
of a holy God. And a healthy fear of certain things, especially things that, are, that, can be, that can be a danger to our body and our soul, causes us to respond in a certain way. And this passage wants us to respond in a certain way, to worship and revere our God. So as we look at this passage, we're going to find a simple outline, two pictures. We find two pictures in this passage, two pictures of God's holiness that warn followers of Christ to not refuse him who speaks in his son. Two pictures of God's holiness that remind us as followers of Christ to not refuse God who is speaking, to not refuse his son. Okay, so that's where, and this encourages the, particularly the saints who are wrestling with turning, going back to the old covenant, going back to the, to the, uh, the Judaism as practiced back then, and uh, they're encouraged to hold on to their faith in Jesus Christ, to endure and keep running to the end. So the first picture of God's holiness that's conveyed in this passage is conveyed with the, a contrast between the picture of two mountains. Two mountains. And we see these two mountains. They are the mountain of Mount Sinai and the second mountain is Mount Zion. But these two mountains are found in this text and they have a rich Jewish theological background to each mount. Uh, But the author points out to the Jewish background believers, first of all, that he says to them, you have not come to Mount Sinai. We read this in verses 18 to 21. For you have not come to a mountain that can be touched, and to a blazing fire, and to darkness and gloom and whirlwind, and to the blast of a trumpet, and the sound of words which sound with such that those who heard begged that no further word be spoken to them. For they could not bear the command. If even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear. And trembling. Uh, we are come right into the middle of this chapter, and the conjunction four really explains the uh, connects it to the the whole previous section of one to seventeen. It really going back to even chapter twelve, verse one. But this is, explains the reason why believers must continue to run the race with endurance. Why we must continue to hold fast to Jesus. It's because of what he's going to be explained in the following passages, the following verses. This is why you don't fall away. First of all, you don't follow it because you've, just, because you've not come to Mount Sinai, is what he's saying. You have not come to Mount Sinai. Though Sinai is uh, technically not mentioned in the text. It's not mentioned anywhere. You don't see the word. But just looking at the context and if you read the words, you can tell if you know your Bible, your Old Testament history, Mount Sinai is what is being referenced here. For the, and for the Hebrew audience, Mount Sinai was a big deal. It's a huge deal. It was there that Moses had led Israel out of Egypt and out of Egypt after the Exodus and crossed the Red Sea. And they, were, they would have wandered around in the wilderness, and, but instead he led them straight to Mount Sinai where the nation of Israel, after 400 years of captivity, finally got to meet their God. They got to be in the presence of God for the first time. This God who had delivered them. And there on that mount, on Mount Sinai, in the Sinai Peninsula, God's holy presence was, was manifest, right? On that mountaintop. And when God manifest himself, when he came down on that mountain on the third day, 
that they had arrived there. It was accompanied by fire, darkness, gloom, whirlwind, trumpet blasts, and terrifying words. I wonder, and and that's just according to Hebrews, I want to read for us the description from Exodus, where we actually see what happened when God came down. Exodus 19, verse 16 and 19. So it came about on the third day, when it was morning, that there were thunder and lightning flashes, and a thick cloud upon the mountain, and a very loud trumpet sound, so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke, because the Lord descended upon it in fire. And its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked violently. When the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him with thunder. You know, we are so familiar with these stories, but if you just stop and think about that picture, just imagine that picture. It must have been the most terrifying thing, and it was a terrifying thing. It was amazing and awesome, and, and you know, just something no man had ever experienced before, and yet. There it happened to the nation of Israel. That is, was the manifestation of God coming down <laughs> to Mount Sinai. There they met God. And it was a terrifying thing. Though it was a physical mountain that one could have touched or could have walked up, they were forbidden to touch it because it was now a holy mountain, a holy mountain where God dwelled. A holy mound that if anyone or even any beast were to touch it, they were to die because God's holiness. The terror of God's holiness on Mount Sinai was so great that not only the people were scared, they did, when they heard God speaking to Moses, they didn't want to hear any more. They, in effect, were saying, We don't want to hear any more of God's word. It is too terrifying. Moses, you you go talk to him and then come and tell us later. Even Moses, according to Hebrews here, was terrified, was full of fear and reverence for the Lord who had come down and caused the whole mountain to tremble. And as awesome as Mount Sinai was and is for the nation of Israel, the author of Hebrews says that believers in Christ have not come to Mount Sinai. They have not come to that that great experience of the nation Israel's history. They have come to something far better. Instead, he tells them, the author says in verse 22 uh, to I'm sorry, 22 to 24, you've not come to Mount Sinai. Instead, you have come to Mount Zion. Verse 22 to 24, let's look at what the word says. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. 
Here, in contrast to Sinai, Mount Zion is explicitly mentioned here by name. And Zion, if you know your Old Testament, and you kind of go back to Old Testament, just peruse the Old Testament, it's mentioned several, many times, but depending on context, it can refer to several different places. The first time Zion appears in the Bible is in 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 7, where it is recorded that David captured the stronghold of Zion that is the city of David. So Zion referred to this first to the ancient Jebusite fortress. It was a strong a fortress that was on a mountain. Uh, these Jebusites lived in the land on that time, and David conquered the Jebusites. He conquered that fortress, and he renamed that place the city of David, his city. It would later, of course, be known as Jerusalem, the city of David. But eventually that whole mountain, as well as the city, or various places, would be referred to as Zion. Even the Temple Mount, where the temple, the mountain in Jerusalem where the temple is, would also become known as Zion from time to time in the scriptures. It was, Zion was also used to refer to the land of Judah. And even in some of the prophetic books like Isaiah, Zion referred even to the people of Israel as a whole. And so context would indicate what Zion would mean. And so here where Zion is mentioned again, we can think of many different things. Is it talking about the the fortress, the stronghold? Is it talking about a particular mountain? Is it talking about the city of David? Is it talking about Judah? Is it talking about, you know, the people of Israel? Or if we look at the context, Mount Zion is referring to God's dwelling place in heaven. To God's place in heaven. Mount Zion is not the city of David. But according to the scriptures here, it says that it is, this Mount Zion is a reference to the city of the living God. It is not physical Jerusalem. According to the text, it is the heavenly Jerusalem. It is not where myriads of people dwell, but it is where myriads of angels dwell. If you, you know, just stop right there and you think, that's enough to tell me this is, this is talking about where God dwells. This is heaven. This is a, you have come, as those who are believers in Jesus Christ, you've come to, to heaven, to where God dwells. What's more, Mount Zion is where the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven dwell. There's a lot of interesting, by the way, this is, as we're going through this, I, I hope many of you who are not, if you're kind of new to the book of Hebrews, a lot of these phrases and terminology are new to us, they're unfamiliar, they're not commonly used by us, but the church of the firstborn uh, are enrolled in heaven. These are a reference to New Testament believers who have died. These are, the, these are already enrolled in heaven. Those who have died in Christ, whether shortly after his resurrection or whether just yesterday, through faith in Jesus Christ, are with the Lord our God in heaven right now. And this, is, this, is though, this, this is the place that you, as believers in Christ, also have come to. That is also our hope. In the it's interesting, there's a mention that he's the judge of all. They dwell there, not despite that he's the judge of all, it's because he's the judge of all. He who judges all has judged our sins. 
and he's holy and just, and he has justly judged our sins, but he's judged them upon his son. And so he will not hold it against us who have come to him and come to cling to him through faith. There's a mention here, too, that we've come to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. That's often interpreted. It's kind of hard to interpret that. It's often interpreted as Old Testament saints, those who have been, had been waiting in heaven, waiting in, in, uh, in heaven or, uh, and for that, the consummation of the completion of the salvation. And when after the death of the resurrection of Christ, they were then made perfect. But most important of all in coming to Mount Zion, that this mountain that believers come to, is that we have come to Jesus. We have come to Jesus who is the mediator of a new covenant. It means he's the, he's the one who has brought about the, the arrangement, the, the institution, the ratification of this covenant that God had made, but that needed to be ratified. And Jesus is that mediator between God and man, and through his own death, he brought about the completion and the accomplishment of this new covenant. We've studied this in, already in Hebrews. It's a, it's a covenant that, among many things, it is the promise of the removal of our sins, the forgiveness of our sins. Where Forgiveness of sins where God will remember them no more. It's the covenant where God will be our God, and we will be his people. And that's the new covenant. And this is all possible only through the blood of Christ. It's through his blood. Every covenant had to be ratified by blood and his, the new covenant was ratified by the sprinkled blood of Jesus. That mentioned even sprinkling there is a picture of the annual day of atonement. Remember the annual day of atonement when the high priest would walk in to, into the holy of holy places and he would bring the blood of a bull and he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat. Then he would bring the blood of a goat and he would sprinkle it upon the different places of the mercy seat. All so that to make atonement for himself and to make atonement for the nation of Israel. And then next year, he'd had to do it all over again, right? But Jesus Christ, through his sprinkled blood, accomplished once and for all the salvation, the forgiveness of sins of everyone, of all time, of every place that would ever believe in his son. He accomplished that. He completed it because through his sprinkled blood. Jesus' blood is sufficiently to, uh, sufficient to atone for the sins of all. And this is what we have come to as believers. You've, as you have come to Jesus at Mount Zion. And though Mount Zion is in heaven, and though even in a sense we're not physically there right now, Mount Zion, nevertheless, is still a present reality. It's a place that you and I have come to. Because that's what the verb says. You look at that verb real carefully. It's like you will come to Mount Zion. No. It says you have come to Mount Zion. And it's interesting because the Greek tense is the perfect tense. And when it's the perfect tense, it's usually pretty, it stands out. Because it's, it's not just a simple past action or completed action. But it's a past action that has an ongoing effect in the present. It always has that picture of that idea. It's a past, something that happened in the past that still affects what you are today. It's like saying, I was married. When I say I'm married, that's a perfect tense because I got married sometime in the past, but I'm still married. It affects who I am today. I'm still married today. Not because I have a ring, but 
because I'm married to my wife. She, I still live with her. Good. Praise the Lord. You are not in. And so this is amazing. It's, you're, though we are not dead, we're not, we haven't you know, left this earth yet. As believers, in a very real sense, we have come to Mount Zion. It's, it's assured. It's guaranteed. The contract, if you will, is already signed by the blood of Jesus. No contingencies. No escape clauses. No loopholes. In Christ, you have come. Signed, sealed, delivered to Mount Zion. That's our hope. That's ours. At Mount Sinai, the Israelites could only draw near as the mountain, right? They wouldn't even want to go up the rest of the mountain because it was a terrifying thing to go to be near the Lord God. They could not go up because of his holiness. Only from a distance could they see up the mountain the manifestation of God's presence. And so it is amazing. It's stupendous when you think about it. As believers in Jesus Christ, through faith in God's Son, we, those who have received God's Son, we have come to actually to Mount Zion. You have come into God's holy presence. You are actually, you have access to His throne. You can pray to Him anytime you wish because of His Son. At the end of verse 24, the author writes that, Jesus' blood that was sprinkled, that accomplished the new covenant, is a blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. Some interpreted, and this is an interpretive kind of issue, kind of problem uh, for interpreters. Some have interpreted the blood of Abel as the blood of Abel's sacrifice, pointing to passages like Hebrews 11.4. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. God testifying about his gifts and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. See, Abel still speaks through the testimony of the gift that he had given, the sacrifice he had given. And so there's a, some interpret this that it's his, the blood of his sacrifice that he gave by faith speaks. Speaks of faith. Others, of course, have... Uh, on the other hand, I've interpreted the blood of Abel as Abel's shed blood, because many of us know that in the story and that Abel was murdered by his brother Cain. And in Genesis 4.10, there talks about how uh, God comes to Cain and says, the blood of your brother is crying out to me, is speaking. And so that, that is a, a possibility. I, I personally lean towards the first view because of the closer context of Hebrews chapter 11. But in either case, whichever one you want to take, Christ's blood, nevertheless, speaks better than either the blood of Abel's sacrifice or the blood of Abel himself. For the blood of Abel's sacrifice, Abel's sacrifice only temporarily covered his sin, right? But the blood of Christ covers forever all our sins. And for the Hebrew recipients of this letter, for them to refuse to listen to God and to return to Mount Sinai, to return to the old covenant ways, is to, was to reject God speaking through the blood of Christ. And there would be a judgment for that if they did. But they're warned, to, therefore, to hold fast to, just, to, to Jesus because they've not come to Mount Sinai. They've come to something better, Mount Zion. And brothers and sisters, if you've come to faith in Jesus Christ, you also have come to Mount Zion. 
and all these things. Hopefully there's something there that resonates with you. That's something that draws you. That's, that, that's what I want. That's something that is important to me. That's something of value to me. I desire to be with God. I desire to be with the presence of saints who have departed before us. I desire there to be worshiping along with the angels, our God and creator. But whatever it may be, that is the reality for you and I. You and me. Moving on, we come to the second picture of God's holiness, and that is found in verse 25 to 29. We end with the two judgments. Now we see a picture of two mountains, and now we see a picture of two judgments. The author, uh, there's a, the author begins with the main exhortation of our passage in verse 25, which we introduced at the very beginning of our sermon. And that is a warning to not refuse God speaking to us. You know, I love that the Bible makes clear that God is speaking. He's not like the God of the deists who believe that God just made the world and then disappeared and it's like, no, it doesn't want anything to do with us, ignores us, is, is considers us irrelevant to, his, you know, to what he's doing. But God is speaking. See to it, verse 25, that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Present tense participle. This is ongoing. God is still speaking today. Before that, even the, the imperative here is, in, is that phrase, see to it. It's a verb that has a sense of watch out. Beware. Use your eyes. Look. Look out for this. See to it. The same verb was used back in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12. Take care, brethren. That word, t- translate take care there. Watch out, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. A similar warning, similar warning is made here in our text. Watch out. Don't fall away. Don't refuse God who is speaking. There's a connection. When you refuse to listen to God who is speaking, you are in danger of falling away. God has spoken clearly in his word and in his son. And God has spoken and he is still speaking through his son and through the blood of his son. On one hand, Christ's blood speaks. When we learn, when we read about the death and resurrection of Christ, and I love it because we're, we're getting ready to celebrate Good Friday as well as Easter. We remember Christ's blood that was shed for us. And Christ's blood, and we talk about, talk about Christ's blood, Christ's blood speaks. When we think about Christ's blood, it speaks of God's offer of salvation. For why would God kill his son? Why would he send him to suffer, to forsake his, his, the rights and privileges of, of, of de- deity in heaven and to come and take on the form of humble, frail, weak human flesh and then live a, a life that was under the, often under the, uh, perse- uh, they would face the persecution and the, uh, the opposition of the religious leaders eventually to be tortured and then hung on the cross to cruelly, shamefully die. Some of we would even do, we would not do that for anyone in, in the, by our day. We wouldn't, that's not something we would even imagine we would want to do for even our enemies. We don't have that kind of sensitivity in our world today. So why would God do that for his son? Because God so loved the world. Christ's blood speaks of God's love. It speaks of how he loves you and me. 
so much that he would send his son to offer to die in our place so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. But on the other hand, Christ's blood does speak of God's judgment as well. It's a God's judgment upon those who reject his son. We know John 3:16 20 verses down later is John 3.36. And it's a warning. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. That's the good news. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life. But the wrath of God abides on him. See, when we refuse to listen to God, when we refuse to listen to his Son... Remember that? Just even that, that phrase reminds us of when Jesus was baptized and, or even, and even in his transfiguration. God oftentimes, this is my son. Listen to him. Listen to him. He speaks my words. We refuse to listen to God. We open ourselves to the judgment of God's wrath upon us. And God is a holy God. And God is a just God. Therefore, he punishes sin, just like our governments are supposed to punish sin. So God, who is a perfect judge, punishes all sin, rightly and fairly. And so this warning to not refuse God's speak leads into this warning then of future worldwide judgment for those who reject his son. We read, pick up in the latter part of verse 25, for if those, did, if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. And his voice shook the earth then, but now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. This expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken as of created things. So those things which cannot be shaken may remain. In, this verse, in these verses, we see this contrast. There was a contrast of two mountains. Now there's a contrast of two judgments. Verse 25, those who refused him, who warned them on earth, that is God who warned the Israelites through his, through, uh, his word given to Moses, this refers to the Israelites on Mount, uh, after, for, on Mount Sinai and shortly after as they wandered through the wilderness. They had heard God's law given through Moses. And nevertheless, though they had heard God's law, they had received warnings along with the law, warnings of curses for their disobedience. Time and time again, they ignored God's word. We, we saw that in numbers, didn't we? And when they sinned, each time God faithfully, out of love because he's their father, disciplined them. And so the author of Hebrews, pointing that out, uses that and uses what's called an argument from lesser to greater, that if God had judged them who disobeyed his warning on earth, those who disobey his warning that is coming from heaven, his son, will certainly not escape the coming judgment, is what his point is. You refuse Moses, you refuse the warning from Moses, you face judgment. But you refuse the warning from his son, you're going to for sure never escape the judgment of God. It will happen. It reminds of this wording that uh, <clears throat> here in Hebrews 12 reminds of the wording of Hebrews 2.3. How will we escape 
if we neglect so great a salvation. Well, in verse 26 to 27, the author continues to make contrasts of the past judgment of Israel with the future judgment of those who refuse his son. On Mount Sinai, God's word and warnings of judgment came with the, with the shaking of Mount Sinai, right? There was trembling on, on that mountain, and it was unsettling. If you, you know, if you, by the way, if you're up by a mountain, it starts trembling. What do you usually do? You usually, you better run for your life, you know. Uh, it's maybe it's especially if it's like a volcano, <laughs> you better run. Uh, I would run for my life, especially uh, thinking about the mountains that have blown up, uh, the volcanoes that have blown up uh, in our world in, a, in my lifetime. It is unsettling. But in the future, there's a description here that there's going to be a shaking that's not going to just be a shaking of a single mountain. It's not even going to be the shaking of the earth alone even. Imagine that, the whole earth trembling terrible and fearful thing to happen. But there's a scribes here, a shaking of heaven and earth. Worldwide, universal shaking. Shaking in the sense that there's, and the the fact that there's shaking, there's no way to escape it. Nowhere you can run from this terrifying shaking and trembling and really nowhere to run from the judgment that is coming from God. It will be a shaking of heaven and earth. And the, to bring this, the, and to prove this point, the author quotes here from the Old Testament passage from, he, from Haggai chapter 2, verse 6. Remember Haggai the prophet, it's uh, you know, one of the minor prophets, so it's kind of hard, you may not know the story. But uh, Haggai the prophet is sent to speak to Zerubbabel, and the the first, really the first, among the first returnees to uh, Israel from the exile in Babylon, and he called. They had begun work on the temple, but <clears throat> they started the t- the altar, <clears throat> but then they stopped because there was opposition. And so, God sends Haggai and tells them to cause them to finish the temple, finish building the temple. And when they near the rebuilding of the temple they start to notice that the temple was not as glorious as the first temple, Solomon's temple. But Haggai, through God through Haggai, encourages Israel with this comforting thought that one day in the future, God will shake the heavens and the earth. He will shake all the nations so that they bring their wealth to the temple and the glo- God's glory will fill the temple that is on that earth. In that temple, the Lord will give peace, a peace that spreads throughout the world. We understand this to be speaking of the events that will take place in the future, that's still awaiting. In fact, Hebrews still sees it as waiting to take place in the future. It will be that period of time between future tribulation and the, the the completion of the millennial kingdom, between that time there will be a shakings of the, of the heaven and the earth, not only in tribulation period, the 70th week of Daniel, by the way, but also at the end of the kingdom, there'll be a complete shaking of heaven and earth as the whole heavens and the whole earth are destroyed and a new heaven, new earth are brought about. And it's because all sin will be judged finally and the judgment will be terrible and all who have refused God speaking through his son will be, if they have not already been judged at that point, will be completely judged. This will be a judgment that is terrible. It will be complete. 
everything that is of temporal nature will be gone and only, according to Hebrews, the eternal things will remain. Only those things who belong to God's kingdom, his eternal kingdom, and you and I, brothers and sisters, through faith in his son, are a part of that kingdom. You belong to God's kingdom through faith in his son. You will, and that is our hope, that that was is our deliverance from that future terrible judgment. But if you refuse God who is speaking, if you turn away and, follow, and fall away or, or drift away, then you can expect judgment. Judgment would happen, would take place. If you think the, genera- the judgment upon the wilderness generation was bad, as you read in the Bible, the judgment upon the world will be much worse. Thankfully, we have believed in Christ. And if you're here and you have not believed in Christ, well, then the invitation is open to you. You can believe in Christ today. You can put your faith in him today, for he has died on the cross in place of sinners like us, so that through faith in his son, you can have forgiveness of sins where God will remember your sins no more and that you can have an inheritance in the kingdom of God. And what is the response for those of us who are part of this kingdom? Well, the response is of worship. It's a worship of holy God. And we see that this passage ends with the call to worship. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. As believers in Christ, we're part of this kingdom of God and it cannot, which cannot be shaken. So therefore, we should show our gratitude, right? We should give thanks to God. Let us serve him. Let us worship him. Let us do so with reverence, with awe, because he is a God, holy God. Because, verse 29 puts it, our God is a consuming fire. God's wrath is a, like a fire that burns up completely everything that is, does not, that is not meant to last, that is sinful. This reference in verse 29 is an allusion, maybe even a direct quotation from the Old Testament. It's taken from Moses' words to Israel before they enter the promised land in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 23 and 24. Listen to what Moses says to Israel there and just think about how this parallels so much its relevance for us who are recipients of the new covenant. He's speaking to them as recipients of the old covenant. Think about this. Think about it. If you could almost put your word, put new covenant in there and put yourself in this place. So watch yourselves. (laughs) Same idea. Beware that you do not forget the covenant of the Lord your God which he made with you. And make for yourselves a graven image in the form of anything against which the Lord your God has commanded you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. There's our phrase. Don't forget this covenant. This, for you and I, for you and me, it is a new covenant that the Lord as God has made. But don't forget that he's given to us this in, through faith in Jesus Christ. Don't ever allow ourselves to, to be turned away from Jesus, to, to, make, to follow after 
idols and graven images, other pursuits of life, other uh, other desires in, of the of the flesh or of uh, that we'd pursue. Don't let the pursuit of anything else become greater than God. For our God is a consuming fire. He's a jealous God. We belong to him. He is our God and we are his people. And so let us behave and react and respond as people who belong to him, who live to worship and serve him with reverence and awe. Let us not forget this new covenant. Let's not turn away from Christ to other things. And the reverence of God's wrath, of God's wrath that, if you remember well, is a wrath that we all deserve. And yet, because of Christ, we don't. We, we're free from that wrath. Drives us to worship. Drives us to worship God when we recall that Christ's blood saves us from the wrath to come. And so, let us not be those who refuse God who is speaking. Are you refusing God speaking? You know, we can refuse God in, in an intentional way. Maybe we know, maybe not by not, first of all, by not believing in his son, by not listening to what Jesus, by not putting our faith in. That's one way to intentionally refuse God's son. But we can refuse God who is speaking through just disobeying whatever we know is intentionally in God's word. That's a way that we refuse God who is speaking. And we, whenever we do that, we should repent and confess our sins to the Lord. But there's a more subtle way that we refuse God speaking is when we just simply neglect God's word. I don't want to put you on a guilt trip. We've all been there, you know, talking about reading God's word. And there's not a, you know, check mark. God's not saying, well, you, you know, you read the God of my word Monday morning and evening, seven days a week. Oh, you're good, you know. It's not, not like that. But when we don't bother to read his word, we ignore his word, are we not just the same as those who refuse? Because you don't even know God's word. You're not even paying attention to what God's word is. You're refusing God is speaking. And maybe you're not, that doesn't make you right at that moment ready to fall away from Christ. But you, if you continue on that path, it is on refusing to listen, to hear God who is speaking is sets you up to fall when the time of temptation comes and you're, you're, about, you're tempted by the world and there's nothing that comes to mind from God's word because you've not been in God's word. Nothing reminds you of Christ. Nothing reminds you of the kingdom. Nothing reminds you of the wrath of God or the holiness of God. Because we've listened to simply what the word. I've listened to my Taylor Swift songs. I've watched my uh, Reacher's t- television series. I've like I've, you know I've just been so caught up in all my sport, my fantasy sports. I don't know anything else. Those are the things that inform my life. Don't get me wrong. I think those are wonderful. You may enjoy some of those things. Okay, but let not those be the the voices, the words that speak that we listen to loudly. Let us make sure we listen and hear God's word. Because our God is a God who speaks. In the past, he's spoken in the prophets, many portions, many ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us in his son. So let us not refuse him who is speaking through his son. Let us not drift away, nor fall away, nor throw away, nor turn away from this great high priest, Jesus Christ, who through his blood offered up once and for all 
has provided the way of salvation, deliverance from the wrath of God, the judgment that is coming in the future. Let us hold fast to Jesus. Let us not turn, let go of him, but hold fast to him. Let us draw near to him, turn towards him, and let us run with endurance the race set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Let me leave you with three questions just kind of for you to reflect upon this week, maybe in your discussions and your meditations. Question number one aspect of Mount Zion, are you most looking forward to and how does that strengthen your faith? That's just kind of you can think through the list that's kind of mentioned. Secondly, why is it important that remember that God is speaking to us today? And thirdly, how does the reminder that God is a consuming fire increase your reverence and awe of him? And may these help you to love God more and to live for him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word and your truths. And we praise you for, most importantly, for the fact that we have come not to Mount Sinai, but we have come to Mount Zion, to you, to where you dwell. And most importantly, it's because we have come to Jesus, the mediator of our new covenant, through the sprinkling of his blood, accomplished our salvation and speaks still today. Lord, we pray that we would respond to your word, that we would be men and women of your word who continue to have open ears to all that you have to say to us through the words of Christ revealed in the scriptures. Help us to be men and women who are faithful to not only to to read it, but to obey it and to follow your ways. That we would treasure you above all things more than anything else that we might treasure and pursue in this world. Well, Lord, guard us, Father, from the temptation to ever hear anything else or allow anything else to speak into our minds and to our lives more than what you have to say in your Son. Fill us, Lord, with love of Christ, love for the one who died for us in our place so that we would continually heed his word, your word. We ask, Lord, that you continue to build, uh, grow us in our worship and service of you. Help us to be men and women who reverentially and and, uh, worship and serve you. And we pray, Lord, that you would do a work. Continue to mold and shape us. For you know, Lord, our frailties. You know the many ways that we fall short. You know, Lord, that we are just like the Israelites of old. We too are given to stubbornness and we're stiff-necked as well and we often run back to our old ways. Oh, but Lord, remind us always of your word and and yours through your Son. Guard us from temptation. Deliver us, Father, from the evil. We ask that you would build your church until the day of Christ Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for the gift of your Son and the gift of the kingdom that we can be a part of. Thank you, Father, for this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Pastor Henry.